Hey, good morning, UCC, and guests as well. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to our online service. You know, not meeting together can really uh, suck and, and not be great, but when you wake up and it's minus 20, you know, staying at home, drinking coffee, watching church, eh, it's not so bad. So uh, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us, and thanks so much for uh, being a part of our worship experience this morning. Um, we're going to continue on a series that we started off a few weeks back now, a few weeks back, a month ago, I don't know. Time has no meaning in the pandemic, just to be clear. But we've been working, we've been walking through the book of 1 John. And again, remember, 1 John is such a unique book because it's written after almost everybody who is eyewitnesses to Jesus have all passed away, right? John's letter is the last letter, the last thing written in the Bible. So his perspective is going to be so unique and so different than everything else. And so John is writing to a group of people who have heard about Jesus, right? And, and I hope that sounds familiar because that almost feels like us today, right? So he's talking to people who have heard about Jesus and are trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing and what does it mean to be disciples of Jesus. So step by step throughout his letter thus far, he's going to ask us different questions. He's going to test us different ways. And based upon our, our answers, he's going to tell us uh, where we are in regards to that. So let's just recap what we talked about last week here, just to make sure we're on the same page. So Last week, John was asking about, a, about our maturity level, right? So remember, up until this point in time in the letter, John has been uh, asking different questions. He's been kind of guiding us a little bit long. And then he stops and he pauses. And he pauses to kind of encourage us. But in that encouragement also is some other tidbits for us, right? So remember, John talks to three groups of people, right? He talks to children or babies. He talks to the young. And he talks to the mature. Right, and in doing so, what he's also doing is asking us, um, "Which one are you?" Which is again a fantastic question, right? And so he he gives us kind of some hints of what children look like, right? Remember, the first child, the first baby, is a newborn, right? But the second time he mentions the word baby, it's actually a toddler who's come under the care and the teaching of a parent, right? He talks about the young, and he talks about what it look, looks like to be mature. And I said to you last week that what he's really doing here. Is, is he's asking us, you know, are, where are we on this journey? But you need to remember, the achieving of any one of these is not static. In other words, it's not a badge you get and you're, and you're there, right? So you could be a Christ follower for 10 years and you could say, I I'm mature. But that doesn't mean you stay mature, right? Because that means you are continuing to grow, continuing to develop, continuing to moving forward. So we have to always understand, too, that this can also be reversed. Right? And, and again, there's a whole variety of reasons for that. But just keep in mind, right? Like, I don't want you to have in your mind that you're a, a, you know, a baby, you're young, or you're mature. Realizing as well, too, that the circle can go the other direction as well, too. And you know, with children, you can actually you know, drop off into you know, pre-whatever that looks like. And so one of the things that John does for us is, remember I said to you that up at this point in time, John has asked us three tests, right? And so remember, those tests all have the phrase claim. Right? So if we claim we have no sin, if someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commands, if anyone claims I'm living in the light but hates a fellow believer. And I said to you that these kind of align themselves with how John talks about maturity, right? So the first way of, of course, when we first become Christ followers, it's confession. Now, we've said this before, and just to remind us, there has to be a point in time, and I'd like to use the word tipping point, right? Because, you know, Rather than this sudden, at, in a moment, it's more of a gradual progression for the most part. And so John says at some point in time, there's this tipping point where you move from um, um, uh, an admirer of Jesus to actually a disciple of Jesus, whatever that looks like, right? And we said as well, too, for the mature, right? The mature are knowing. Remember that word knowing this is a Greek word, gnosko, which is like, it's, it's, it's a constant hunger and craving and learning of the things of the Lord. And we said the battle, right? So this idea with the young, right? The young are those who are out there fighting, fighting themselves, sometimes in regards to their desires and to their, and to their thought lives, but also fighting against the enemy in, in the world as well, too, setting up for justice, uh, being examples of compassion and mercy. So John aligns the three claims up to this point in time with the three levels of maturity. And remember, the question John really wants to ask is, where are you and how long have you been there? We said this last week, right, that you could be a baby in Jesus, and you could be a baby in Jesus for 10 years. Now, I don't know 
if that means you move to adult diapers, but you're still in diapers, whatever that looks like, right? So you could be a baby for an extended period of time. And what John really wants to make sure is that we start with a baby, obviously, but you actually move to the young, right? Where you're actually doing, living, and, 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 and glorifying Jesus by your lifestyle. And of course, the mature. And we talked about what that looks like for uh, the individual. So this is what John has been talking about, and this is where John is, is kind of have taken us. This morning, we're going to shift gears a little bit, as John uh, does, and he's going to ask us a different question. So before we kind of engage in that, one of the things Christians have always struggled with and continue to struggle with today is, how do we live our faith out in the world? What's our relationship with culture? And this is actually a question that we've been asking throughout the pandemic because this is something that people are reassessing, right? People are asking themselves, you know, what is my relationship with the world and, and, and how far is too far? And that's actually an interesting question, right? So when I was growing up, right, so we were told different things in regards to uh, what it meant to be a Christian. Now, remember, my background comes from the holiness slash charismatic movement. And so they were a lot more... Um, <laughs> passionate in regards to what you can and cannot do. So I remember being told when I was a youth by my youth pastor that if Jesus came back and I was in a movie theater, I would not go back with him. That's, that's just one of the things I was told. And now, obviously, we can look back and we say, well, what was up with that? But that was how they understood. So as Christians, we've been always asking ourselves, what is our relationship with the world? And, and this has actually brought a great uh, deal of, of good dialogue, but it's also brought out some, some pretty uh, unfortunate things as well. Well, there's a great article by a guy named Ryan Nelson, and there's basically three views on this in the world. And Ryan Nelson's actually going to be... Um, um, springboarding off a guy named Bruce Ashford, but we'll get to him in a second. So here's the first view of, uh, of Christians' engagement with the world. The first perspective sees Christianity and culture as two opposing forces of influence. The church stands on one side of the line and culture on the other. This stance transformed the church into a sanctuary where people seeking refuge from spiritual siege of the outside world. Christians somehow, sometimes talk about trying to find balance between immersing yourselves in the world and isolating yourselves in a comfy little bubble. This perspective has, has fully embraced the bubble. So what's interesting is, is Christianity has maybe seen itself as uh, the world as antagonistic towards what we believe. Now, there is some truth to that. Remember, each one of these perspectives is going to bring out a truth of what we are. So, but the first perspective sees that Christians are fighting against the world. And when you fight against something, what you tend to do is you circle the wagons and you, you create what's called uh, like a subculture. Right? And, and Christians have done that, right? So what, what, what Christians will do is say, you know, if you like this type of music in the world, well, we've got this type of music. So if you like uh, Jay-Z in the world, we have Lecrae, right? If you like this and then we have that, right? So we, it's, it's kind of a replacement, right? But with a replacement, what we do is we create this subculture, right? Because we look at the world as evil and, and, and all these things. And again, not that there isn't some truth to that, but because you see it that way, you tend to kind of withdraw from the world. So that's the first view. The second view goes the opposite direction, right? The second view embraces culture and brings it into the church. Those with a Christianity of culture perspective tend to build churches that are mirrors of the culture. By becoming a reflection of culture, the church can lose its position as a champion of a better way to live. When Christians em embrace the gray areas, the better way of life we offer can become a gray area too. So this one is the opposite of the opposing. This one is a full-on embrace. Now remember, with this one as well too, what happens is we can maybe embrace a methodology, and we're going to talk about this towards the end in regards to church culture, but when you embrace the methodology, when you embrace culture, what can happen is we can actually embrace values of the culture without even realizing it, right? We can embrace um, the ways we look at it and say, well, uh, we're just going to fully on just say, yeah, we're, and, and, and again, churches can reflect this. So for example, churches have green rooms, right? Now, a green room is, is, is a term used for concert halls. So the artists or the talent would have this place to lounge before they go on stage. Right? So churches that have green rooms are saying, oh, this is a talent or this is, these, these are the important people or whatever, and then they, then they go on stage. So it's seen as a performance. Now, actually, no, I'm not going to modify that. Yeah, that's exactly what I believe. So with this one here, 
This is where the church actually looks like the culture. But the interesting thing here is that with this type of a model, it becomes difficult for the church to be able to show an, uh, a different way of living when everything about us looks exactly the same as the world. And of course, the third model, again, there has to be a better way, right? Because the first two are kind of depressing. He says this, and, and third and a better mindset is one that views human beings as representatives of Christ who live their lives in the midst of and for the good of their cultural context and whose cultural lives are characterized by obedience and witness. God created the structure that allows culture to exist, shift, and progress. As humans, we formulate and shift that, uh, and as humans, we formulate and shape that culture within God's structure. So as we we need to understand is culture is always shifting, right? And um, we have to understand that the gospel isn't based upon methodology. One of the biggest mistakes the church has made is embrace methodology as theology. So methodology is how we do things, right? How we do things can always shift as long as the core of theology of the gospel doesn't shift with it. Now, what's been amazing about Christianity, which is different than other world religions, is Christianity has a way of penetrating a culture and bringing light to it, but without becoming it. Now, remember, Christianity has made some mistakes historically in regards to importing Christianity and culture. Right? This whole idea, a whole conversation of colonialism and Western importation of values, that's actually a... a, a a bit of a disgrace to the gospel. Um, there was a TED Talk I saw a couple years ago, and what this woman did was looked at the trajectory of Chinese food. I know. Wait, I'll get to there. So she said Chinese food is kind of interesting because every culture has embraced Chinese food, but also given their cultural perspective. So, for example, uh, I was born in India, and uh, there is a form of Chinese-Indian food uh, hybrid called... Um, Halaka? Hakala? Halaka. No. Something like that. I have to look. I don't, I, for some reason, I'm having a brain fart. So what's interesting about that is it takes Indian spices or Indian ways of preparing, and it combines it with Chinese food. And what I said about that is the gospel has been kind of like Chinese food, that every culture has embraced it, but it's also been able to kind of live in a culture and, 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 and be a part of the culture, but also not have to kind of impose another culture's values, but still kind of redeem a culture as well too. So this third model is all about how we do that. And, and remember, as Christians, we have to always be shifting according to culture. So for example, Christianity is going through one of its, Western Christianity is going through one of its greatest uh, shifts in the uh, last couple of hundred years in regards to what's happening with the pandemic, but also Western Christianity and what we're doing. So we have to ask ourselves is how do we best convey the gospel without conveying the values of the culture? And so in the third model, you are living within, but not actually shifting towards it. Now, I said to you before that Ryan Nelson was basically basing his off a guy named Bruce Ashford. Bruce Ashford wrote a book called Every Square Inch. By the way, a great book if you're a theology geek or a culture geek. And in his book, he says this, Every aspect of human life and culture is ripe for Christian witness. Every dimension of culture, whether it is art, science, or politics, is an arena in which we can speak about Christ with our lips and reflect him with our lives. And I love how he kind of aligns those two together. We thank God for the existence of culture and recognize whatever is good in it, while at the same time seeking to redirect whatever is not good towards Christ. Now, this is important, Right? In art and science and politics, we have to realize that there are great things about it, right? But there's also so not so great things about it. So we celebrate the good, but we also call out the bad. Now, the phrase every square inch comes from a Christian philosopher by the name of um, Anthony uh, Kuyper. And he says this, and I love this quote. He says, uh, there is not a square inch, that's where uh, uh, Bruce Ashford got the title from, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I love that. I, I love that phraseology because what it says to me is that what we have done is we've compartmentalized religion. We've compartmentalized faith. And we said that, you know, faith belongs on Sunday morning, right? But everything else from my relationships, to my job, to my finances, to uh, my everything, whatever else is there, well, that's mine. 
What he says, what Abraham says is, is rightfully so, is there isn't an area in our lives where Jesus does not say, mine. And that's the interesting thing about the gospel, and that's the interesting thing about the mature. The mature in Christ are those who hand over to Jesus every aspect of their lives. Now remember, sometimes it's easy to hand over certain parts of our lives, but sometimes it can take a decade for us to hand over something else to our lives. But the progression of maturity is handing over. Remember, we, we start off in Christianity with this idea of saying, everything's mine. But the Holy Spirit comes along, right, and slowly but surely releases our fists and says, every aspect of my life belongs to Jesus. Now, when I was growing up, I really struggled with this, right? Because I loved art. Uh, I, I consider myself an artist, not a great one, but I consider myself an artist. But in my Christian context, art wasn't really seen as valuable or even Christian. I remember going to Bible college. I'll never forget this. This is my first year. And... Um, I remember listening to Branford Marcellus, he's a jazz guy, and it's an album called Crazy People Music. By the way, it's an amazing album, right? But it's jazz. It's totally instrumental. And you know what you do in your dorms, right? So you, I had the music playing, and I had my door open, right? And I think it was a fall, so I had my window open, so a nice little breeze was cooling things down. And I remember a couple of guys stopping by my door. They're hearing music, and they're like, oh. And they're like, well, is that Christian music? I'm like, it's jazz. Oh, is it Christian jazz? I'm like, it's instrumental. There are no words, right? I don't know if, 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 if certain chords are evil or, or I don't know how to explain that, right? But what that said to me is that Christians have always tried to figure out, you know, what is Christian, what is not. We've tried to create these labels. And sometimes the labels are with good intentions, but other times the labels are with really bad intentions. There was two books that I read when I was in high school because I was a weird kid. Uh, first book was a book called uh, How Shall We Then Live by Francis Schaeffer. Again, a fantastic book. The other book I read was Kingdoms in Conflict by Charles Colson. Both these books were able to help me navigate kind of what does it look like to be a Christian in, in, in our culture. And because of that, there's this quote from Francis Schaeffer that I love, and I think it's kind of comical but also sad. He says this, Tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying in seven years. See, what's happened is, is culture has now told Christians what to think and behave. We've told, they tell us our values, and because we're so desperate for people to like us in a culture, we just reflect that, right? So whatever, whatever culture is talking about, you know, it takes a while to kind of infiltrate the church, but the church seven years later will be like, yeah, we will believe in that. What's so sad about that is we allow culture to kind of dictate the trajectory of the church, when really the church has always been ahead of most things that culture figures out in regards to um, uh, uh, human rights and justice and feminism and environment and, and, and social justice and, and all these concepts that the world just seems to have discovered over the last 50 years. The church has been there for almost a thousand years, if not even longer. And so it's sad to me that now the church kind of listens to culture and says, oh, that's what the culture likes. And so we'll, we'll, we'll model that seven years later. And, and so hopefully people will like us and attend our churches. And so this is a question that John is now going to ask us. So if you have your Bibles or on the online church platform, you can click the tab and you can bring up uh, the scripture in whatever uh, reference you want there. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 17. And this is probably the most, the second most famous passage from the letter of John, right? The first one would be, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and purify us from all righteousness. People love that one. Well, this second one, people kind of come to as well too. So we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 this morning. And this morning, I usually use the NLT, but I'm going to use the ESV because I like how they phrase this. It, it, it kind of captures, I think, truer to the heart of what John is trying to convey. This is what the passage of Scripture says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is a very famous uh, passage of scripture within the letter of John. Now remember, John is writing his letter to the second and third generations of Christians, right? And so they are growing up and they're asking themselves, what place does Jesus have in my life, right? What place does Jesus have in my life? And now the reason we, they're asking that and the reason we ask that is because 
again, it's easy to give Jesus the, the easy parts of our lives, right? But it's almost more difficult to kind of give Jesus the stuff that A, we love and we want to have, whether it's pleasure or comfort, but B, also the brokenness, the sins of our lives as well too. And so John's already addressed that. Now, what's interesting is John, the apostle John, has been called the apostle of love, right? Because he talks about love. So three times before this, John has talked about love. But now look at the context that John has used love, right? So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, but those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. This old commandment to love one another is the same passage you have heard of. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. So thus far, and in, in, in the three times John has used love, he doesn't use in the first chapter at all, He's, he's using love in a positive way, right? Positive way about love for God. Positive way about love for God's law. And also the positive way for love for one another. And we get to go, yes. But now this third way, John is going to use love in the opposite. He's going to ask us about what we truly love, what we truly value. So let's just walk through this passage and we'll kind of extrapolate towards the end uh, some kind of lessons for us. So, do not love the world or the things of the world. Now, just a quick note here. The word that John uses for love is a Greek word called agapeo. Now, agapeo is different than agape. So we know agape, right? Agape is a divine love. It's an unconditional love, right? But that's not the word that John uses here. The word that John uses is agapeo. Now, the, different, the difference between uh, agape and agapeo is because agape is unconditional. It's divine, right? It's only the kind of love that really God exemplifies towards us, and we as human beings struggle to exemplify to ourselves and to others. But the love that John uses here is not about a love that is unconditional. Instead, it's a love that is to be contented with, right? So do not love the world. Or in other words, don't be contented with the world. Now, another thing too, William Barclay on his commentary on this passage says this, love for the world precludes and even pushes out love for God. You know, what's interesting about this idea of love and what John is saying here is that love is not infinite. We as human beings don't possess anything that is infinite. Right? Instead, that we have limited, finite, limited amount of love. And so we must choose what we show, what we, what we actually do love. Um, what's interesting is John Calvin had this great phrase. He said this, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Well, someone a, a few centuries later kind of uh, translated that in a modern way. It says this, the human condition is driven by idolatry. And see, this is what John is saying. Whatever we love more than God becomes an idol in our lives. Now, here's how you know an idol in your life. Anything that you refuse to give to God. So if I was to say to you, um, to be a Christ follower, you must give up this part of your life. Now, if this part of your life is an idol, you're like, no way, forget it. No, God doesn't want that part of my life. And that is your first indication of that actually may be uh, a love that you have for that thing and not for God. And remember, this, this idolatry, this way of looking at idols in the world, it can be anything. Finances, relationships, um, pleasures, like, like, like again, the list can go on and on. So John is saying, if, if you love the world or the things in the world, but in other words, if you, if you find yourselves contented with the things of the world, you, then you really won't love God. And, and the question he's really asking is, is what really satisfies you, right? Because that's the implication of this passage of this first part here, right? Because if you are contented with the world, then you don't want anything of God. So what's interesting here is that what, does, what satisfies you in the world? But the problem is, is whatever satisfies you in the world, well, then God can't satisfy you. I love what Jeremiah says. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. Now, what's interesting here is the weary or the languishing, right? What's interesting is, is the way most people will come to God is when the world doesn't satisfy them anymore. And, and that can be an acknowledgement in our, in our youth as a young adult or older, right? At some point in time, we realize we kind of realize what King Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, right? The pleasures of the world. And I remember, pleasures become addictions without even, like, 
well, I think we realize it, but we're, like it, it can grab a hold of us in a way that we don't even realize. And John is asking us, what do we really love? And Mark chapter 8, 36, 37 says this, and what do you benefit if you gain the world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Remember, we talked about this a few months ago. We call this the divine exchange. What do you, what do you exchange your soul for? Now, again, if, if I said to you, what do you exchange your soul for? I think most people would respond, nothing. But that's actually a lie, right? We give our soul away, not all together, but we give it away in pieces. And so John is asking us to make sure that the world does not satisfy us. And again, this is a great test. If the world does satisfy you, well, then you're never going to be satisfied by God or you're never going to seek God because everything you have is right in front of you. Now it goes on. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. I came across this great quote, and it was anonymous, so I don't know who to acknowledge it to, but it says this. If we love the world the way God loves it, we wouldn't love it in the way that we shouldn't love it. See, remember, John has a way of talking about love. Remember John chapter 3, verse 16, probably the, the most famous scripture you'll see at a baseball game, football game, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right? So we have to always remember God doesn't hate the world or those who live in it. He loves it. His, his, his posture is always towards love. But he loves the world in a proper way. And the proper way simply is that there's boundaries that God has set up for us. And whoever wrote this quote, I love it. Because if we love the world the, the proper way that God loves the world, then we will call, we'll speak into the darkness, the light of Jesus. And again, right, that's what, again, another imagery that John uses in his gospel. So what we have to understand here is that as we love the world, we have to realize that there, there is this, this exchange that can happen if we don't love it in the proper way. Um, John Blanchard says it this way, a man caught up with this world is not ready for the next one. See, what we're really asking, what we're really saying here is, is, is the finite versus the infinite. Now, however long you have on this planet, and I don't know what that is, and my prayer and my hope for all of you that it's a long time, but we know that at some point in time, that will be over. You know, one of the things interesting about pandemic is that, you know, Western culture has been confronted by death. We have, in, in a very bizarre way, we have separated death from our normal lives, right? The rest of the world understands death as a natural, normal part of life. And because of that, they have this understanding that things are finite. Well, Western culture, we tend to take death and we, and we set it aside. We have all these things. And again, there's reasons for that. But what we've done is we, we don't know what to do with death. And, and, and the pandemic has really reminded us about the frailty of our humanity, Right? Beforehand, people say, I live forever, but now this thing that we can't see can infect us and worst case scenario, take our lives. Right? So death is now all around us. And I would say that I think many of us are traumatized by that. Right? What John is saying here is, is death has always been around us. We've just chosen to ignore that reality. Um, John presupposes our capacity for love as finite. Therefore, love of the world is not a static proposition. It is continual ebb and flow. Now, here's what I mean by that. The love for the world is something that can, you know, it, 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 it kind of comes and goes, right? I was going to do this whole um, analogy of a cup of water, and I was going to pour some water, and I'm saying, okay, this is your capacity for love, right? And whatever is in that cup already is, is, is a capacity of love for the world. And then I was going to pour in a different color liquid into that and say, this is what God's love is. Now, our job is, is to shrink the love for the world so that we have love for God, right? And that's what John is asking us, right? If you love the world and you, if you embrace the world's values, if you are contented by the world, well, the love of the Father is not in you, right? You don't, you're not even getting close to that. Now, here we come to the next part, right? Uh, this is the part of, of, of the flesh and the pride in the eyes. Now, I'm going to show you something here. We're going to break this down into three here. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, right? So the first thing that John says is the desires of the flesh. Now, this is the idea of self-satisfaction, right? Matthew Henry in his commentary says this, natural desires at rest, um, natural desires are at rest when that which is desired is obtained, but corrupt desires are insatiable. Nature is content with little, grace with less, but lust with nothing. 
kind of, I really like that because what it says is that when we have desires of the world, there's nothing that can satisfy us, right? It's a constant craving for more. This is how we know that our desires are out of control. It was when nothing will satisfy us, right? I've mentioned this before and just remind you, um, I've, had, I've worked with addicts in the past, and one of the things an addict will tell you, whether it's alcohol, whether it's a drug, and, or whatever it is, an addict is always searching for the greater high, right? When an addict first starts down their journey of addiction, something has triggered a craving within them, right? And the first time they tried this drug or, or whatever the experience is, they'll go, oh, that was amazing. But the second time they'll try it will not be as amazing, the third and the fourth and the fifth. So what happens is they increase the uh, usage or, or whatever it would be so that they can chase that high, right? That's what the addiction to sin looks like, right? Our lusts are never satisfied, right? Our lusts are never satisfied. And so what John says here is that the desires of the flesh, these things will not be satisfied. But a quick note here. Lust of the flesh isn't simply sexual, as many interpret it. So if I say lust of the flesh, everyone's like, but you need to understand something. Your flesh just does not, isn't only uh, enticed by um, things of the flesh, but it's also enticed by something else. It is also laziness in, the, in our spiritual lives. It is seeking comfort at every occasion. It is spiritual apathy as a way of life. You know what I know about me, and what I kind of know about you as well, we can sometimes choose the easier path rather than the hard one, right? So in the pandemic, it's a phrase I hope I never have to use again in a couple of months, but in the pandemic, um, you know, our gyms have closed. So before the pandemic, I was playing squash three, four times a week. And I wouldn't say I was in top uh, physical shape, but I was definitely in better shape than I am now. And so I've tried, you know, our YouTube videos. I've tried other stuff. And I just, it just, it, it's not sticking. And I just confess that to you, right? Uh, I've gained weight. Uh, I'm, I'm a lot lazier. My laziness, uh, your laziness, just to be clear, it, what happens is, is we actually crave comfort. We crave inaction, right? The human condition likes apathy, right? Because we don't like change. Because change requires growth, change requires energy, and so sometimes we can actually choose the easier, easier path. So your flesh isn't just simply about desires and lusts, as, as it is so easily interpreted, but it's actually about um, choosing the easier path. So, for example, we've talked about this before, the Pandemic Faith Survival Kit. Sent them out, gave them out, whatever I could do, right? And the Pandemic Faith Survival Kit was spiritual disciplines that I think are important to continue on uh, in this time when we are not meeting in person, right? But even if we were meeting in person, these are still great things. So fasting, praying, meditation, reading scripture, these are all spiritual disciplines that you and I need to kind of go through. In other words, to continue to become mature. But what can happen is when you receive the Pandemic Faith Survival Kit, I, I, from what I heard, most people were delighted by it and enjoyed it. Have you continued with it? That's an ouch statement, right? But see, that's the flesh, right? These spiritual disciplines, which are so good for our soul, which are absolutely necessary for our spiritual condition, our flesh is like, mm, I don't want to pray, right? The other day, last week, um, I, took, I took a day to fast. Right? Because I realized I hadn't done it in a couple of weeks, and I was like, oh, I need, I need to fast. And so I took a, I took a day for fasting. I, I, took, I took some time for meditation. Right? I, like, like I, as your pastor, and also trying to create these spiritual disciplines in my own life, because it's easy for me. My flesh, my flesh likes a good nap. My flesh likes to binge television shows. Right? My flesh doesn't like to study and, and all the other things that God wants of me. So the desires of the flesh just aren't simply about the lust of the flesh. They can also be about comfort, about spiritual apathy as well. The next one is the uh, desires of the eyes, right? This is where we come up with this idea of self-deception, right? In scripture, the eyes are the primary organ of perception and often the principal avenue of temptation. We become what we focus or give our attention to right? If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. 
Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is my favorite psalm just because it's the psalm of Western culture, right? The psalm is written from a Jewish man who has seen these pagans who are beautiful, healthy, and wealthy. While he, who's trying to keep himself pure of God, well, he is unhealthy, he is unwealthy, and he is, he is un, uh, unpopular, I guess, right? And so he's saying, I, I, like, I envied the wicked. I envied those who are not living the way God does. And guess what? As Christians, we can look at the world and we can envy them. For I envied the proud when I, what? Saw them prosper despite their wickedness. See, our eyes can see things and envy or craving or, 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 or wanting what somebody else has can overtake us. Oh, by the way, that's social media. Whether it's Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat or whatever the heck is out there now, right? We get to see how other people are. And it doesn't even have to be someone famous. You ever seen someone's picture on Instagram and they're having a good time while you're sitting there in your track pants looking at the person having a good time, thinking to yourself, I wish I was having a good time, right? Envy, our eyes are what we behold in the world, right? But the thing about Psalm 73 is when he's saying, I envy the proud when I saw, he is focusing on them, right? The aha moment for him comes at verse 16 where he stops focusing on them and starts focusing on God. And he's given a heavenly perspective for this life. So John says our eyes can deceive us. We are living in self-deception if we think that how these people are living, what they look like, what they own, what they possess, or what other people think about them is more important than what God thinks about us. So John says the second area of temptation, the second area where sin can creep in our eye, uh, into our life is eyes. And the third one is pride. And this comes, this idea of self-glorification, Right? The pride of life describes the arrogant spirit of self-sufficiently. The proud are unteachable. This is something that I've, I'm most brokenhearted about Christians, is that this idea that they can't ever think or, or reflect or modify or change what they believe. Now, I'm not saying that we look at the Bible and go, oh, maybe Jesus wasn't God. That's not what I'm saying. But as I hopefully you've learned from my, from my own experience, is I I try not to teach you from everything I know because I don't know as much as I think I do, and and nor as much as I want to. Instead, I teach you from things I've learned as well, from things I've discovered. Right? I've tried to as much as possible keep a posture of teachable. Right? In other words, to learn. I have. Um, I have a natural penchant for curiosity. I'm just curious how the world works. I'm just curious how things function. Like when I was a kid, I took things apart. I could never put them back together, but I took things apart because I just want to see how it works, right? So that curiosity has always kind of kept me like, hmm, I wonder if there's more I can learn, right? Whenever I take Rosie, Rosie is our little dog, and you might see her sometimes creeping around the floor a little bit. Rosie is a very curious dog, right? But she's not curious about the things she can see, she, what she can smell. So whenever I take her for her walks, um, you know, she will stop and she'll sniff a spot. I'm looking at it, there's nothing there, but she smells something right? She's curious, right? Well, I'm curious as well too, right? But the proud aren't curious. The proud think that they know everything. They're not teachable. It expresses a desire for recognition, applause, and status, and advantage in life. The phrase describes a pride in what life can offer you, right? Um, Brooke Seswick says this, if the truth was known and believed, pride would not exist. Your pride comes from lies that you are believing, Right? What do you think you think about the world? Whatever you think about yourself, pride has a way of infiltrating us. And as we talked about this in our screw tape letters a couple of weeks ago, false humility can be a type of pride as well. Right? So what's interesting here is John gives us three areas in our lives about pride. Uh, Dr. Thomas Constable says it this way, and I think it's kind of interesting how he phrases it. He says this, the lust of the flesh is the desire to do something apart from the will of God. The lust of the eyes is the desire to have something apart from the will of God. The pride of life is the desire to be something apart from the will of God. The first desire appeals mainly to the body, the second, the second to the soul, and the third to the spirit. Now, whether you, th you agree with this classification or not, what I think is so interesting is this has been the way the enemy has, has attacked us, treated us, but not just us, others as well too. What's interesting is John parallels two other individuals that you may have heard of, a person by the name of Eve and Jesus. So even Jesus, when they were tempted by the enemy, the enemy kind of comes at the same way, right? So the temptation of 
the idea of the flesh, right? So Eve sees a tree, and the Bible tells us the tree was good for food, right? The enemy comes to Jesus and says, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Why bread? Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry, right? So the first temptation that the enemy does for Eve and for Jesus is the flesh. Look at the second one, right? What does Eve say about the tree? That it was a delight to the eyes, right? What is it about to Jesus? The, the enemy takes Jesus to holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. Why does the enemy take Jesus to the highest point of the temple? Because on the ground around the temple are the Jews, right? Are the Hebrews, the people that Jesus comes to talk to. So if Jesus does something so miraculous as jumping off but floating down, kind of like a superhero drop, right? People all around go, oh, wow, right? This is the idea of the eyes. Show them you're the Messiah, right? Show them your power. Show them God's power, right? So the, the second temptation is of the eyes. And of course, the third temptation for both Eve and Jesus is idea of pride. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, right? What does the enemy tempt Eve with, right? Wisdom, right? Did God really say, right? Did God really say that you'll die? And the fact is, it's not the physical death because they eat the fruit. They don't die physically. The, the fruit wasn't poisonous. It was poisonous to their souls, right? But then look at Jesus. The enemy showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, right? The final temptation is pride. See, I've said this before, and I just want to remind you, the enemy doesn't create. The enemy just twists, right? And so what the enemy attacks uh, us is this almost the same way. And so John kind of says, you know, the, uh, the flesh, the eyes, and pride. Well, this is what the enemy does. Let me do it kind of in a Venn diagram so you can kind of see here, right? So what happens in our lives is, is that we are constantly attacked in the three areas, right? The three realms of attack, right? So we have the flesh, the eyes, and pride. And so what's interesting is the enemy wants to make sure that we are looking, we, that he's going to attack us. So if it's not the flesh, it'll be the eyes. If it's not the eyes, it's pride. And of course, the reality is it's a combination of all of these, right? So when we talk about this idea of flesh, it's like comfort, it's addiction. We think of this idea of pride, it's glory, it's affluence, right? It's, it's influence or it's social media. It's, it's the applause of the peers around us, right? When it's this idea of the eyes, right? It's social media, right? We get to see how other people are living and we want that. That's envy. Um, desire, these are all things, right? And of course, what is at the very center of all this? Right? It's self. Right? The three attacks are all three attacks on, on the three areas of our lives, right? So what we see is the flesh, what we with the eyes, it's our it's what we see in our minds, it's our will, right? And and of course, pride is this idea of self-glorification. Pride doesn't need God. Right? Pride is self-sufficient, it doesn't need God. So what John is saying to us really in an interesting way is, is that these are the three areas that the enemy will attack you. And, and, and historically, that's what he's done, and, and he continues to do it today. Steve Cole in, uh, says this about this, com uh, about this passage of Scripture. Whatever commands our time, energy, and resources commands us. And if we are honest, we will admit that our lives really aren't that different from those of our secular counterparts. I suspect that one of the reasons we are so ineffective in evangelism is that we are so much like the people around us that we have very little to which we can call them. We hang around church buildings a little more. We abstain from a few things, but we simply aren't that different. Christians look very similar to the world and how they use their money and how they use their time, how they use their resources, what they want from the world, kind of comforts and pleasures, right? Time, energy, and resources. At UCC, we talk about this idea of time, talent, and treasure, right? Time, talent, and treasure are the three areas of our lives that God wants, right? And again, these three areas are, you, you, you might have an easier time giving up two of them, right? Time and talent, yeah. I'll show up on Sunday morning and I'll serve, but my finances, those are mine. Or I don't mind giving my finances because I'm a student. I don't have that much anyway, so I don't care. And, and time, but, you know, I'm not going to give you my talents. Like, like, again, you see the idea, right? What Stephen Cole says is really important. What we focus on, what we desire, that is what becomes God in our lives. We can replace God, the divine exchange, with other things in it. He goes on to say this. 
Um, we don't even do hedonism as well as the folks around us, but we keep on trying. As a result of this unfortunate accommodation, Christianity is reduced to little more than a spiritual crutch to help us through the minefields of the upwardly mobile life. God is there to help us to get our promotions, our house in the suburbs, and our bills paid. Somehow, God has become a co-conspirator in our agendas instead of becoming a co-conspirator in His. Something is seriously amiss. Right? That is, you know, I always use the phrase tattoo-worthy. I really don't want me to get these tattoos, obviously. But honestly, what Stephen Cole is saying is absolutely true. And this is what John is asking us. Right? Do you love the world? And, and again, you'll know if you love the world more than you love God by what you refuse to give to God, by what you refuse to release to God. Um, there's a guy by the name of, of, of uh, Tyler Jones. Uh, Tyler Jones created an Instagram account a couple of years ago, and it got a lot of controversy, right? So Tyler Jones created this Instagram account called Preachers in Sneakers. So what he did was, is he took very famous preachers, and what he did is he showed you what they were wearing and the cost of what they're wearing, right? And so whether it's Rich Wilkinson Jr. wearing $995 uh, boots, or it's uh, um, Erin McManus wearing $1,000 Nike shoes, or Stephen Furtick with Nikes, or others as well too, um, what he does basically, he says, hey, these are the celebrity pastors out in the world. And this is what they're wearing. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a $965 Nike, whatever they are, I don't, I don't know if I can make my mortgage payment. I don't know if I can make a car payment. I just, that, that'd be it, right? But these preachers on a weekly basis, right? Whether it's Gucci loafers, which again, you probably can't see, $730, right? But again, this is what the world has done. And so Tyler Jones wrote an article. And in the article, he says this. Um, Christians throughout the centuries have often taken a countercultural posture, but a prominent portion of American church is now taking cues from the celebrity culture craze that grips Western society at large. Many churches now function similarly to the rest of the world, even, yes, like a nightclub. Though pietistic evangelicals have long attacked Hollywood, their churches, institutions, and leaders now celebrate and reward the blessing of fame, popularity, and influence. Talk about irony. I'll post this article on our Facebook page uh, probably Monday or Tuesday. But what's interesting here, here's what he's saying. Over the last several months, there have been a lot of celebrity pastors who have fallen from grace. And nobody should take delight in that, of course. And what has revealed to us is perhaps the celebrity culture has infiltrated the church. Being a pastor, it's a mixed bag. And, I, and, and again, I try to be as honest with you about it as possible because, you know, I don't want to ever um, betray myself or those like me in a way that's untrue. But what's happened is the methodology of churches, like again, the green room, right? If a church spends more money on lighting than they do on the youth ministry budget, which by the way, I think is almost every church that I've ever worked at, there might be a problem, right? If these celebrity pastors can afford to wear $1,000 sneakers on ass Sunday, you know, let's take 52 Sundays of the year. Say they have $1,000 sneakers for 52 days. And again, I don't, I don't, I don't want to poke holes at them. Um, I just simply want to say that this behavior, this way of looking at it, um, it's really the embrace of culture without actually asking ourselves, um, is this the best way to kind of convey who Jesus is? Like, how do you as a pastor, if you drive a Mercedes, have $1,000 shoes, say to people that you care about the poor? I, I'm, not, I'm not even 100% sure. How do you say to people that you care about the poor if you ask for people to donate to your $5 million building fund? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not really 100% sure. See, the church has embraced culture and has embraced the things of culture without asking themselves, are these the values of the kingdom of heaven? And I think it's very interesting, and this is something I think we need to really think hard on, is this idea that, you know, in other parts of the world, in the Middle East, in China, Latin American, Sub-Saharan Africa, 
churches and Christianity is exploding without buildings, without lights, without cameras, without popularity. And many individuals, you know, they have shoes. I, I just want to confess to you, uh, I like Converse. They're 50 bucks. That's, what, that's, what, that's my go-to shoe, right? My wife loves to thrift. And, 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 and I deliver milk two days a week as well, too. I'm a milkman on top of being a pastor. I don't say that to say, yay me. I just say that to think that maybe we need to ask ourselves if, if, if this is what we want to convey to a culture. Because... The culture is not unaware of this. How do we call the culture to following Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus, if our values mimic theirs? Like, like I, don't, I don't know how we do that. And of course, I'm picking on the Americans, but honestly, it's all over the world, right? This is all over the world. And so what Tyler Jones says, and I think he really highlighted with this in other you know, there's a thing in one called prophets and watches and, and whatever else there is too, right? But simply put, we have to ask ourselves, are we embracing the culture? Have we loved the world to the point where that love for the world has crowded out the love for God? Uh, Ray Steadman says it this way, and we talked about this idea of Jesus and the world. The world hated him, Jesus, because he constantly challenged its basic philosophy. He was in continual protest against that to which the world was irrevocably committed. See, there are so many things in culture, so many things in politics and arts and education and uh, injustice, and again, the list goes on, that Christians should be speaking to. The things we shouldn't be speaking to are whether we should wear masks or how effective they are or, you know, the fact that we can't meet on Sunday morning in person or have a certain capacity and do it safely. Like, these are not the areas that we should be investing our protest towards. But instead, we should be shining a light in a very dark world where we get to say to people, you know what? The gospel of love, the gospel of the kingdom looks different than the gospel of the world. The good news of the world is, is insatiable lust and desire and eyes and pride. But the kingdom, it's serving. It's sacrificing. It's all of these things and more. Let me close where we kind of quote another famous passage. Jesus, Jesus chapter, uh, in John chapter 17, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer, prayer in the garden. Right? So this is Jesus' final prayer, one of his final prayers, before he's taken off to the crucifixion. And of course, I have been starting to think about Easter, you know, which is in April. And I've actually ordered something for our church to go through for Easter. And I'll tell you a bit more about that in the, few, in the next coming weeks. But John captures Jesus's understanding of a Christ follower's relationship with the world. And look what he says in John chapter 17, verses 14 to 18. I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. And the evil one has three ways it's going to tempt us to, to, to sin. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Right? In, not of. We've got the of down pat but we don't really have the in. John asks us, do you love the world? Because if you love the world, then the love of God is not in you because the love of the world and the love of God are two opposite things. And again, love of the world is easy to ask yourself. It's simple. What do you refuse to give up to God? Ask yourself the question. If someone has come along to you and said, what do you refuse to give up to God? That's an idol in your life. And those idols replace God. And those idols will crowd out the love of God. Remember what John says, agapeo, to be contented with. Does the world satisfy you? John's asking that question, and it's an important question because it asks us to ask ourselves, what is it that really we really give our attention or focus to? What is it that we really give our resources to? And when you answer that, then you'll have a good test to see if you have the love of God or the love of the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have called us not to separate ourselves from the world, but to go in the world with the gospel and with light. Lord Jesus, please forgive us when what we have done and how we've behaved has mimicked 
the values of this world. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would continue to sanctify us, purify us from all unrighteousness, and that unrighteous behavior can be the eyes, the flesh, and pride. If this is areas of our lives that we have given to the enemy, I pray, Holy Spirit, for A, your conviction, to bring it to our attention, and B, then, the strength to overcome it. Lord Jesus, we want to be your disciples. We want to take up our cross, die to ourselves, and give every aspect of our lives to you. Good, bad, and just ugly. And I thank you, God, that you are merciful and gracious time and time to, again to us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have one more song. I'm going to answer any questions that were texted in, and I have a couple of announcements, so stick with us. Hey, welcome back, UCC. So I have three questions here, so I'm going to read the first one. The first one is fantastic. It says this, after reading the scripture you shared, it appears as if the Bible says we humans cannot love things of this world dearly. For example, our families, communities, friends, and life goals. Is, that, is this the case? Can we have people and goals in our lives that we would be reluctant to give up? Does this mean I don't love God? It's a fantastic question. So remember when Jesus says to his disciples, right? You must hate your mother and father, husband and wife, brother and sister, right? Now remember, we've, I've explained this before, but I just want to repeat. What Jesus isn't saying that we hate them as an emotion of, of anger, but instead hate in his context, and again, in the Jewish context, was to love less, right? See, you need to understand, is, is God has given us this world, and in the garden, the world was given to us for our pleasure, for our enjoyment, right? And so what we have to always make sure is that we enjoy what God has given to us, but within the proper boundaries, right? All pleasures are, 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 are given from God. Remember, the devil cannot create pleasures. He just takes the pleasure God has given us, and he twists it right? And so every pleasure, every aspect of this is, 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 has its proper context, right? Remember, pleasure that overpowers God becomes addiction, right? So yes, you can love your family and your spouse and, and, and your friends and all that, but again, whomever you love, you cannot love them more than God, right? And that's, that's the point of what John is saying here, and I think that's a great question. So does this mean I don't love God? No, it just means that you have to always be careful that your love for God isn't eclipsed by love for something else. Remember what the eclipse is? Eclipse is when the move in, it moves in front of the sun. Now, the moon is so much smaller than the sun, but because of the proximity, it can block out the sun, right? And so what John is saying here is our love for things in the world these things cannot eclipse who God is for us. And remember, love in its proper context glorifies God. So when you love your spouse, when you love your friends, when you love your children, when you love those God put in your life, and when you love your enemies, right? In this proper context, that brings glory to God. Next question is this. I have a question about surrender. With something like addiction, there's a clear surrender by not continuing in that addiction. For something a bit more vague, though, like jazz music, for example, how do you surrender that to God? So remember, surrendering something to God isn't the, the fact that you stop doing it. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, right? So one of the things we talk about at, at our, on our screw tape Letters group, and again, I keep referencing screw tape. If you want to join us, even if you haven't been with us, you can pop in because each chapter is almost self-contained. We'd love to have you join us for our Tuesday or Thursday. Thursday has more space for our screw tape letters. And I really invite you to join us because it's a lot of fun and some great conversation. But a couple of chapters ago, we talked about this idea of, of these confident resolutions, right? And so C.S. Lewis says that what the enemy wants us to do is to make confident resolutions towards God. Now, here's what a confident resolution is. A confident resolution is I will no longer struggle with this sin. I will overcome this temptation. I will overcome this addiction. Now, these confident resolutions are the beginnings of a lie because the fact is you don't know if you will overcome that sin. You do not know if you will overcome that addiction. And nowhere in, this, in, the, in the first couple of chapters we've studied with John is John implying anywhere that we have to overcome, right? What is he asking us to? To bring it to God if we confess our sins, right? Remember when I talked about that, I said to you, the sins that trip us up the most are the habitual, repetitive ones. So you can say to me, I'm gonna overcome this addiction or this thing that I struggle with. And I could say to you, amen. And, I, and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that can happen. But 
It's gradual. Remember, Christianity is a marathon, not a race, okay? It's a marathon, and the reason I say that is that I don't want you to ever think that um, surrendering something to God is bringing it to God, presenting it to him, and acknowledging that this thing is in your life. It's the stuff that we hide from God that we think he doesn't know, right? In a relationship, you can't deal with something that you don't are not open and honest about. And so for all of you out there, and I include myself in this, we all struggle with things, but we can never imagine that those struggles are, over, are, are going to eclipse God in our lives. So yes, surrender to God, but realize by that surrendering, it doesn't mean you've overcome or it'll never happen again. It just simply means you are being honest and authentic and saying, this is what is dark in me. The Holy Spirit can't even begin to convict and challenge and change you, transform you until you're honest with yourself. So that's what that looks like. The last question is, can you repeat the book titles that you mentioned in your Christian creative talk? So the book that really helped me as a artist, as a Christ follower, was a book by the name, uh, it was called um, How Shall We Then Live by Francis Schaeffer. That was the one that really impacted me the most because what Francis Schaeffer does is he goes through architecture and art throughout history and says how these disciplines were, were a place where God is glorified. Right? Art used to be this idea of, of lifting up and magnifying, glorifying, not necessarily God, but the creation, which is God, which is a reflection of who God is. Not to get too uh, complex, but it was you know, Jean-Jacques Sartre, uh, Derrida. Uh, it's a deconstructionist movement that kind of infiltrated art and kind of pulled down this high ideal and, and really twisted it into different things and that's a whole different conversation in and of itself. But the point simply is, is that book really helped me. The other book that I really like, it's, it's, it's really outdated, but I still think it has some great truths, is, is uh, Kingdoms in Conflict uh, by Charles Colson. And Every Square Inch by Bruce Ashford is a fantastic book in regards to our relationship with the world. And if you want to know other ones, I, I love me some books. And so if you want some more titles to read, I, 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 would, I have lots for you. Just a quick note here. This Wednesday, uh, we have our trivia night. Now, remember, our trivia night is just a fun time, right? So it's by Zoom, so you have to email me for the Zoom link. We do not put our Zoom links on in uh, uh, public places. So remember, you can either come with a team of four or you can come by yourself and we'll place you on a team. And so that's 7 p.m. this Wednesday. And remember, first prize, second prize, third prize, there are prizes. They're gift cards that will be given out. Uh, and so... It's just a fun way for us to have, have uh, to kind of see one another and compete with each other. Now, I won last time. I, my wife's like, don't win again this time. I don't know if I can. I, I, don't, I, I can't really give anything up. I have to always, I always kind of compete. So I welcome the challenge for all of you. Remember, teams of four or come by yourself. We'll place new teams of four. There's no cost. It's absolutely free. We'd love for you to join us. Uh, Sarah does such a fantastic job with her questions, and uh, we really would love for you to join us for that. And don't forget, you have to email me. By the way, if you email me five minutes before seven, I, I might remember to get back to you, but if I'm online and you email me, I'm not going to say I'll get the Zoom link to you. So just do it ahead of time. I have the Zoom link ready to go so I can email it to you. So just, uh, you know, don't leave it to last minute. That, that's always helpful. And of course, as always, thank you to everyone who continues to support UCC. Um, I love the fact that, you know, with time, talent, and treasure at UCC, we say these are all gods. And for those of you who have taken your treasure, Right? And I realize as well, too, in the pandemic that some of our treasures have, have shrunk, and, and, and I get that, right? Thank you so much. Uh, because of you, um, we're able to give out gift cards to the community. We're able to continue to help the community and keep things going as we do. So I just want to say thank you so much for that. At UCC, we don't like to talk about finances, although, again, there's no reason not to because every area of our lives are God's. And for those of you who continue to support uh, UCC, we are so grateful for that, and thanks so much for doing so. Text to give, e-transfer. Um, thank you so much for the uh, for your continued support and our ability continually to uh, help those within our community. Let me close with a word of prayer and our benediction. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love the world. You don't like what their world behaves like. You actually hate what you see in, as injustice. As, as, as all these other things, Lord, you hate that, but you still love the world. You call all of those of us 
into a, a relationship with you that redeems and changes and transforms. Lord, I pray for every person watching, whether now or at a later date, we would ask ourselves a question, do we love the world more than you? Whether it's our eyes, our flesh, or pride, the three areas the enemy will attack us in. Lord, I pray that we would assess these things and just say, okay, this is what we need to do to give every aspect of our lives up to God so that nothing eclipses his love for us. And Lord, for those who are, wa who are watching, and I, I don't want anyone to, to allow the enemy's voice about their sins, about their past, or about what they wrestle with to overcome your ability to, to forgive and to redeem us, Lord. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're gracious and merciful. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to move and, and, and just change and transform our own lives, Lord. Now may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the communion fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each of us in Jesus' name. Amen. So don't forget, we'll see you Tuesday and Thursday for Screwtape. If you'd like to join us, you're absolutely welcome to. Wednesday, game on. We'll see you for uh, our trivia night. Everyone is welcome. No cost for that. We'd love to have everyone to be a part of that. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. You guys have a great weekend. We'll see you throughout the week. Take care. Blessings.